0: For 50 years, Ibar, an alien from planet Rikos, has lived in human form on Earth as Kyle Johnson. When Ibar gets into a fight at the sewage treatment plant, where he works, he is put into jail. A jailer overhears Ibar trying to contact his home planet and tells the authorities. Ibar is sent to the psychiatric ward of Buffalo County Hospital for evaluation where he eventually comes under the care of Jeremy Slater. Jeremy is a young mental health professional, and Ebar's case is his first assignment. No one believes that Ebar is an alien. More to the point, everyone thinks he's crazy. After working with his patient for a month, Jeremy begins to believe Ebar truly is who he says he is, and concocts a plan. If Eba will quit talking about being an alien and pretend he is human, Jeremy will work with him so he can get released from the hospital and go on living his life. Eba agrees. Jeremy's egotistical boss, Dr. Richard Andrews, has other ideas. He and a friend at the Pentagon have come up with a plan of their own. Andrews will take over the case and announce to the world that Ebar really is an alien. Andrews figures it will make him famous. His plan is to keep Ebar locked up and study him for the rest of his life. Jeremy is appalled. He and Ebar have become friends and he can't allow Andrews to take control of his friend's life. Aided by co-worker Julie and her partner Wren, the four of them, go on the run, with thugs sent by the Pentagon in hot pursuit. This is a story about good and evil, and is a mirror held up to the times we live in. Ultimately though, it is a story of friendship, a friendship that changes the lives of both Eba and Jeremy, forever. Jim Bates's Alien of Orchard Lake. Get your copy now at MythMod.com. And now, enjoy this free j Modcast show. Carry on my wayward son There'll be peace when you are gone let be to rest.
1: Don't you cry. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 143 of Lupa's Bits. I am your host, of course, Lupa, um, that's doesn't change, so I could probably drop that, but, you know, it's it's tradition. I do it. It's what I do. Anyway, I'm your host, and I am going solo tonight. Um, my live studio audience is uh, nowhere to be found. <laughs> the last I heard from him was... Uh... I hung up the phone from him at 6.26, uh, my time. It is now 9.31, my time. And uh, he has been unavailable for consultation. Uh, we hung up. He was going to watch uh, Gremlins. He's binging the Gremlins thing, because um, it is the month of October. And it is what we do. Um, so... I left him to watch Gremlins. I was editing and then um, I wasn't sure if my movie partner tonight was going to be available because I'm doing a binge series as well. What I'm doing is um, Crystal and I are watching um, The Conjuring Universe. Now, there has been some debate, uh, mostly with me and my grumbling, um, about the movies involved into the universe, the Conjuring universe, okay? Now, we all know that it started with, the very first movie that was released was The Conjuring, and this entire universe has kind of stemmed, um, where's the link I'm looking for, has kind of stemmed from that first movie. So we have had spin offs and then spin offs from spin offs, and everything is kind of intertwined by the thinnest of threads in some movies, well, one movie in particular, or um, by one strong theme that runs through the entire movies. Excuse me, I said open. Open says me. That's not opening. There we go. I just didn't click it properly. So to watch um, to watch the movies in chronological order. Now we're not watching them in release order. We're watching them in chronological order because that's just kind of how I roll. So we started with the nun the other night. Now. If you don't watch or if you haven't watched all of the um, Conjuring universe of movies, then um, spoiler alerts. There are going to be spoilers. I'm going to be discussing the movies. So you might want to stop now. Just saying. So the very first movie in chronological order is The Nun. Now, if you remember from the Conjuring movies, she doesn't really show up until the second one. Um, I'm pretty sure it's the second one where he paints the portrait where Ed Warren paints the portrait of the nun and Lorraine goes into this trance like thing and you get his name and she sees she has a vision of Ed's death Um, and it's this big demon that they're fighting at the end of The Conjuring 2 and the Nun kind of has this tie to every single movie, um, whether it's subtle or very, very obvious in all of the, the universe movies, but one. And I'm going to have to watch it again. I'm not sure if we're going to include it or not, um, in our, um, ten days or nine days of Annabelle and the Conjuring because the um, connection to the universe is so, so, so flimsy. Um, So we start with the nun and that is the very first appearance of Valak, the demon, and go away. (laughs) That is the very, very first um, appearance of Valak. They, um, Sister Irene, comes into contact with it, and you watch this this whole battle um, break down and carry on throughout the entire movie. Now, that leads into at the end of that movie. Um, it doesn't connect directly, but in chronological order for the years that these movies take place in, the next movie that you would watch would be Annabelle Creation. So this is the creation of the famous Annabelle doll. And you see this Annabelle doll in, um, she shows up in, um, The Conjuring, I do believe you see her in The Conjuring 2 as a flash. Um, she's not. She she. There is an appearance of the doll in the Warren the Warrens uh, possessed museum in The Conjuring 3, but it's very brief. Um, but she does make an appearance. So this is her origin story. Now. If you know anything about the Warrens, you know they are demonolo- they were demonologists. Um, they have both passed on now, and they were real people. And *The Conjuring*, *The Conjuring 2*, kinda—I have issues with that too. And um, *Conjuring 3* have all been taken directly from their files, from the cases that they have worked, especially *The Conjuring 3*, *The Devil Made Me Do It*. That was literally ripped from the headlines. So The Conjuring is kind of what started this whole thing with the parents. But you see Annabelle at the beginning of that movie. So you would start with Annabelle creation after you watch The Nun and you get introduced to uh, the demon. And before you even ever meet the Warrens, you're introduced to all the baddies in this universe. So now we meet Annabelle. And, um, that movie, there is a, a particular scene at the very beginning of the movie when there, the couple's daughter, the husband is a doll maker and he makes the dolls. Um, there's like a, a whole set of them and that's what he does is he makes these special dolls and he sells them and it's like in the 1950s, I think, um, Anyway, they break down on the side of the road. Their daughter runs out to get a nut and gets hit by a truck. And the way that they cinematically presented that is like it's it's very hard to remember that it's all a trick of the camera that makes you believe that the little girl was actually hit by the car because it is so well done that it is that traumatic to watch. So you watch Annabelle creation, and this is where you discover how um, the demon gets into the doll. Now you don't see like there isn't um, an obvious reference to Valak the nun um, in the movie except for when um, Mr. Mullins, the husband, looks at um, the, the sister that's there, the nun that's there, and there's a picture of the cloister that is featured in the movie The Nun, and she is with them. She went on a sabbatical, went and met them, yada, 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 spent time with them, and he turns the picture, like, angles the picture just a bit, and he says, who's that? And you see her in the background, like, a silhouette of her in the background. And that's the first indication that you get of her. And then um, I think the second time you see a reference to the nun is when the crippled girl is sitting in the wheelchair in um, outside under the tree. And she thinks it's the sister that has come um, to push her. In the wheelchair, and it's not, um, it's actually another nun, and you know, you just, you know, it's Valak, that nun. So, that movie ends um, it. You, you see, the little girl is possessed and she takes off, she runs away. They don't find her, she shows up at an orphanage, and this couple adopts her. And takes her home. And then the movie fast forwards 12 years, I think it is. She's all grown up. She's run away. She's joined a cult. She's back. She kills her parents. And that is the opening scene for the movie Annabelle, which is the second, the third movie in chronolog. Well, okay. I lied. The third movie in chronological order is The Nun Two. And we see um Sister Irene from *The Nun* back doing battle with Valak again. So now we're back with with the original demon. Um, the Warrens aren't involved in this. I don't believe. I don't know because *The Nun* just came out. It is still in movie theaters as we speak. So that hasn't been put on our list because um, we can't find a good link. But that's where it's supposed to go. So it goes *The Nun*. Annabelle Creation, The Nun 2, and then you go into Annabelle. And we still haven't even gotten to the movie that started this whole thing. So, then you're into Annabelle. And this is um, the story about the doll that's already now possessed. So... Pregnant woman, her husband's becoming a doctor, they live in this house. And if you remember from um Annabelle Creation, the end of that movie is this husband and wife being killed by these cult members, one of them being their estranged daughter. And um, a woman, the end of Annabelle Creation, a woman sits up in her bed, the lights go out next door, and the movie ends. So that scene doesn't actually happen right away. That scene happens a little later into the movie Annabelle. So, I mean, it's not that far in, um, but it's a happy couple. She's pregnant. She, they're, they're, he's going to, to medical school. He's doing his residency. And they live beside this older couple that, you know, they feel really sorry for because their daughter ran away and joined a cult. Well, they don't know she's joined a cult. They think that she's just off joining a hippie commune or something because this is now in the sixties. So they're in bed sleeping and you flash to that same scene that Annabelle creation ended on. And she sits up, she wakes up her husband. She's like, I heard something. And like you see through the window, the whole scene that you saw play out at the end of Annabelle creation. This time you're in the house next door instead of in the bedroom, the actual bedroom where the the mother and father were killed. So the husband, the doctor husband goes and checks it out. They're dead. Um, She goes running back. The pregnant woman goes running back into the house. And um, now to caveat all of this, the pregnant woman collected these porcelain dolls, the set of these porcelain dolls that Mr. Mullins from Annabelle creation made. And now they're collectible items and um, she was missing one and it was the Annabelle doll. So um, she's not named Annabelle yet. That comes later. And um, the girl that kills her parents, her name is Annabelle Higgins. Now, Annabelle is the name of the little girl that was hit by the truck in Annabelle Creation. Higgins is the last name of the crippled girl from Annabelle Creation. So, this is Annabelle Higgins, all grown up. Um, anyway, they have now broken into her house because she didn't lock your doors back then. So they're now in her house after they've killed the parents. They're now in her house, stab her in her pregnant belly. And, um, the crazy chick dies and bleeds into the doll. And that is, you are, you, you assume that is when her, the, the demon that was in her went into the doll. So, um, The rest of the movie is um, the mom has the baby and she's trying to protect the baby and they're trying to get this innocent soul so that Valak can materialize in the real world. And we're battling along. Oh, look, it's my live studio audience. He seems to be um, alive and well. Let's see what he has to say. Yep, he was snoozing. Okay. Well, that's kind of funny um, I'm gonna take him up send him a picture. He might be calling in to listen so uh, <laughs> anyway, um. Back over to my link. I have to open my link again. We were on Annabelle. So, Annabelle ends with the doll now being in a flea market, um, like one of those secondhand shop type deals. Um, I'm pretty sure that's how it ended. I just watched it. I don't remember. (laughs) Um, I won't lie. There were scenes in that movie that I kind of had to hide my eyes from. So. I'm trying to multitask here. Apparently I can't multitask and brain at the same time. So anyway. Um. Okay, here we go. There we are. Okay, I think we're good. We're back in the land of two phones now, so now I can do things, and it's all lovely. Okay, so, as I was saying, well, I call him so that he can sit and listen while he does all of the things that he needs to do. Um, so, now we are in to um Annabelle and I do believe the end of Annabelle it's uh, the doll is now at a second hand shop and this woman goes in and she's like oh my daughter's been looking for this and she buys it and <laughs> I shouldn't have called him because now he's he's just being mean um I should be mad at him because he was sleeping <laughs> see now I'm bugging him anyway uh, what was I saying? I don't know. I psh, There's only enough blood in my body to one operate one organ at a time. And apparently, right now, my brain is not it. Um, Annabelle, thank you. Okay, so you see the mom. She buys the doll, and she's telling the lady. Like, it's all kind of off screen. You see the doll. She takes the doll down. Um, now, that, wait, that could be at the end of The Conjuring... 2. Anyway, chronological order, the doll ends up in a flea market. This woman buys the doll for her daughter, who's in nursing school. Now, if that's ringing any bells, that's because that is how The Conjuring, which is the next movie in chronological order, that's how The, con- the Conjuring starts. The movie opens up with Warren sitting there. They're talking to um, these two girls and a guy, I believe, they're nurses. They're telling them how um, it started with, they they went to a medium and the medium said that there was the spirit of this girl that had died and they wanted to move, she wanted to move into the doll. So they said yes. And um, they started leaving, like there was, the doll would leave notes find me come play with me um i'm do you miss me stuff like that now in annabelle creation the little girl that was hit by the truck uh before she died she would play hide and seek with her dad so she would leave little notes he would be out in the workshop making the dolls and he would come out and there'd be like this little piece of paper on you know the stoop and it would say find me and he would you know go and find her and yada 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 but she would leave little notes kind of telling him, leading him to where she is. And it would be, you know, if he was working, she'd slip a note under the door. I miss you, uh, stuff like that. So these nurses were starting to find this stuff. They called the Warrens, come and get the doll. Weird things are happening. They get the doll, they put it in the museum. And that's the last that you hear about the doll. Kind (laughs) of. The doll comes back later. Um, I think it's in... Uh, anyway, it all comes back later. So this is the movie that started all of these other movies. This is the movie that um, all of the spin-offs have come from. And this movie was taken straight from um, the Warrens case files. So you can Google the Perrin family. There are still members of the Perrin family that are alive. Let me just move my thread here. Uh, let me... Let me Google for you, because, you know, it's what I do. So. Here we go. Uh, April Parent is still alive. Andrea, I believe, is still alive. And Roger, who is the dad, is still alive, I believe. Um, yes. Andrea is now 65. She was one of five girls. One, two, three, four. Yeah, she was one of five girls. Um... Now, the story of Bathsheba from the Conjuring movie is actually um, a legend in that area of where they were. She is um, anybody that does any kind of paranormal research research any kind of studying of demonology or anything like that, you have come across the name Bathsheba. Trust me. So millions of people have seen this Conjuring film. You know, this is the beginning of the franchise. And it's from that film. This particular film is taken right from the Warrens. Are you awake? Okay. I was just checking. He wasn't moving. Um, Is that a pillow? Okay, you are still downstairs. I see the vacuum, so you are still downstairs. Okay, but you do have a pillow. Okay. That's why he fell asleep. He made himself comfy. At least he doesn't have a tickle blanket. <laughs> okay, I, I have to pause here in my chronological order and explain the tickle blanket, because you're going to just... The, wait, sorry. It was the tickle blankie. The tickle blankie. So I sent him this TikTok, because he will do stuff like this. Like, when I'm there, he'll just come and, like, lie down beside me. I'm going to have a nap like right here beside you. Um, okay. But this guy, she's like, what are you doing? The girlfriend's like, what are you doing? Like, I'm going to have a nappy nap with my tickle blankie. And what it was, was he rubs the soft silky part of the hem of the blanket. And it's a, a, a tactile thing for him. It's soothing. Um, and because she's busy doing stuff and you know, she's, over where she's sitting and he's over there and he can't rub the soft spots on her body that he finds. He rubs this blanket and it's soothing. And he's like, you know, if you rubbed my hair or played with my ears, I'd be asleep in no time. <laughs> but she's like, you could just call it a blanket. And he's like, no, it's my, it's my tickle blankie for his sleepies, makes him sleepy. And he, for his nappy naps. Um, And, you know, he has a pillow pretty much. If he gets horizontal, If left alone for more than a minute and a half, his eyes are shut. Now, he might not be completely out, but his eyes are closed and he's kind of floating between reality and nappy nap. (laughs) If I don't disturb him, given five minutes, he's out. He's snoring. There's drool happening. And, you know, that's it. He's done for. Okay, anyway, back to, so I see the pillow, so that was like, oh yeah, you laid down on the couch with a comfortable pillow. There was no hope for you. He probably saw maybe about six minutes of the gremlins. Twelve minutes, maybe? The what? You can unmute. Because you're on the show now, so. They hatched. That's at the beginning, babe. I think so. (laughs) They're still good. They're not gremlins yet. They're still Mugwise. Okay. Back to The Conjuring. Uh, He was supposed to be doing his little binge fest while I was working, and then I forgot... Uh, well, a friend of ours, a friend of Crystal's of mine, is actually having a baby today. And Crystal was there, so I wasn't sure if she was going to make it home for the next installment, which tonight was Annabelle. But she did. I get a message, Elvis has left the building, which means that her husband has gone to work. And we can watch our movie in peace. So, the parent family of Rhode Island claims to have been terrorized by an evil paranormal presence that lived. While living at the Arnold Estate. Now, this is a house that inspired The Conjuring. And if you look up the Arnold Estate, you can watch it live on TikTok. You can watch it live streaming on YouTube. They constantly have uh, cameras streaming in the house because stuff happens all the time. You You can pay to camp on the property and investigate the property. You can pay for guided tours of the house. You can. I think you can pay to spend the night in the Conjuring House. Um, very few actually make it through the entire night. Um, that was once something on my bucket list, and the paranormal geek in me is still like, "Oh yeah, I want to try that." The um, smarter, wiser, um, not no longer possessed version of me is going no. <laughs> No, 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 no. That's like putting an alcoholic into a liquor store, locking the door, turning the lights out, and saying, see you in the morning, and expecting them not to consume. Um, I would not willingly consume, but I didn't willing, willingly consume the last time either. <laughs> so, no, I don't think I will be going willingly for any length of time to a place that haunted so now we were talking about Bathsheba so centuries before the parents lived there local legends say a woman named Bathsheba Sherman uh did but this is this hasn't been proven there um the records are kind of askew some say she lived on the next property some say she was just passing through some say she didn't exist at all now she was rumored to be a witch witch now, she was rumored to be a witch, comma, which W-H-I-C-H, doesn't mean she was. You have to remember, this is um, centuries before 1971. So we're talking probably Pilgrim era or before. Um, if you were a single woman over the age of 25, you were considered a witch. If you were an older milkmaid, you were considered a witch. If you um practiced herbal healing and natural remedies, you were considered a witch. If you spoke out against your husband, you were considered a witch. You know, <laughs> if you spoke above a soft, dulcet tone. You were considered a witch. Um, So there were so many things that could have you labeled a witch. Uh, It could be just that she had a backbone and, I don't know, told somebody to go piss up a tree. Who knows? So local legend in this area alleges that she's haunted generations of families that have taken up residence within her remote grounds. Um, Ed and Lorraine Warren were, which are the couple that kind of anchors the whole um, Conjuring universe, but particularly this movie, um, they visited the home and looked into the hauntings in 1971. And that's kind of what The Conjuring is about, is the time that they were there, that they checked it out, um, they experienced insane paranormal activity they recorded a lot of it Um, they have audio recordings now in the movie you hear snippets of audio recordings from the interview with um, the mother Kathy I think her name was I could be wrong anyway with Mrs. Perrin and you can hear an overlay of one particular voice, but there are other voices speaking over top of her. So you don't really hear her answers. Like you hear Ed's question, which is it's all quiet. You can hear the clicking, the ticking of the clock in the kitchen. Um, and then when mama parents speaks, it's like she's in the middle of a crowded room. So, They have snippets of those recordings in the movie, not enough to um, cause any outward problems, (laughs) but enough to give you an idea of what's going on. Okay, so there is a documentary special that you can watch called Bathsheba's Search for Evil, which attempts to set the record straight on the parent family story. Now, it's anchored by firsthand accounts from the living parent family members and special sets, the special sets out to separate fact from fiction, discovering the truth that lies beneath the blockbuster film. Cause you have to remember it's Hollywood. So what does Hollywood do? They embellish everything. They take poetic license. They add stuff to make it, you know, jump scare and, and all of that crap. So sometimes a lot of stuff, um, gets lost. So. Global News Canada had the opportunity to speak with Andrea Perrin. Now, she's the eldest daughter, and they asked her about Bathsheba, the Warrens, and the spiritual world. And um, she said that it's literally the only documentary that's ever been made about this subject. Not only It not only gets right to the heart of the matter with this particular person, Bathsheba Sherman, I'm not saying her name again because she could very well be like Beetlejuice. Um. <laughs> we did that. Crystal and I did that with Brian one night. Said his name. He must have said it like three times. And all of a sudden, poof, he starts calling her out of nowhere. Just phoned her like four times in a row. Okay. So um, it tells the parents' story as well. With integrity, honesty, authenticity because it's their own words, their own voices, their own experiences, what they remember, what they saw, what happened. Um, and they were so integrated in the process of making the documentary that it became a true representation and characterization of their family memoir. Now, Andrea says she's internally grateful for the opportunity to tell the truth without interference, finagling or hyper- hyperbole. I always want to say hyperbo- hyperbole when I see that word, but it's hyperbole. I'm putting the aphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> My, I would be so proud. Um, the truth of it is phenomenal enough and is certainly stranger than fiction. So the producers really did their homework and the research was exceptional. She actually, Andrea actually wrote a book called House of Darkness, House of Light, and they knew every element and aspect of the story, and they were honest, and that's what matters. This is in this documentary. This is all about bringing truth and light, because even though The Conjuring is an excellent movie, it's about 95% fiction and about 5% hard truth. So just keep that in mind when you're watching it. It's When, it, when a movie says, based on, all they need to Based it on, for it to say based on, is maybe a character by the same name. That's it. This person is, you know, represents the story they're about to tell. And it's, they were there in the real life story. All the rest is embellishment. <laughs> so, yeah, based on. So, anyway, we're at The Conjuring. So this, you get to, you... You see Annabelle, the doll. Um, You see... um, I don't think you get a glimpse of the nun in um, this movie. But you do get a hint of Valak. So, the next movie in the Conjuring universe is Annabelle Comes Home. Somebody came and asked about dinner, didn't they? Yeah, I was waiting. I figured you would be up around the time that he got hungry. (laughs) You can just take me with you. I'm your pocket Canadian. Hi, Jay. Everybody on my podcast, say hi to Jay. (laughs) Okay, so... The next movie, after The Conjuring, in chronological order, is Annabelle Comes Home. Now, Ed and Lorraine Warren were given the infamous Annabelle doll. And now, just so you know, the real Annabelle doll does not look like the doll from the movie. The real Annabelle doll is actually a Raggedy Ann doll. I've always hated those things. Creeped me right out, those dolls. Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy. Creeped me right out. So... They, the the real Annabelle doll is actually in a locked cabinet that is blessed, has a sign on it, says, do not open. Um, I know this because I have a smaller scale replica, but my scale replica is of the doll from the movie, not the actual Annabelle doll, which I am completely okay with. I have a hard enough time with the, um, Annabelle doll that I have getting her little cabinet door to stay closed. I have Thor's hammer, big, huge Thor's hammer toolbox sitting in front of the door, holding the door shut. Anyway, so they're given, um, see now, I told you Annabelle was going to make another appearance. So they're given the Annabelle doll. They have her locked away in the museum and their daughter knows, don't go in there. Don't touch anything that's in there don't even open the door and peek in, just don't. They have a priest that comes in once a week and blesses everything that's in there, seals everything that's in there, blesses the room, blesses the door, blesses all the the religious artifact that is keeping the evil contained within those four walls. So they go out and um, they have a babysitter come and watch their daughter. Now, the babysitter, being a typical babysitter in the 70s and 80s, Um, Yeah, because I think this one takes place in the 80s, I do believe. Um, Yeah, she has a friend over. And I don't know who babysat in the 80s that didn't have a friend over, snuck somebody in, had a boyfriend over, had a friend over, and then snuck them out before the parents got home. And threatens the children within an inch of their lives. If you tell, I'm going to get you in trouble. If you, if you you know, keep it a secret, I'll give you candy. I'll let you stay up late. You know. Typical thing. So, anyway. Um, the babysitter's friend. Um, they're running around playing hide-go-seek. And they're having fun. And they get curious. And somehow, Annabelle's cabinet becomes unlocked. So, The evil gets out, it's in the house, it's wreaking havoc, and um, they need to fix things. So, there you have another um, meeting with Annabelle, who is possessed by this evil spirit. The next movie is now, this is the movie that I have an issue with. This is the movie that I don't really think belongs in um, the Conjuring universe. But it's kind of like uh, some of the Amityville movies that are thrown into the Amityville universe just because they have Amityville in the name. Um, The Curse of La Llorona. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with Valak, has nothing to do with Annabelle, has nothing to do with the Warrens, at all. Not even a little bit. It takes place in 1973 in Los Angeles. Single mom, she's blamed for the death of her two sons. She wants them back, so she's trying to kill the two kids, uh, her caseworker, in order to bring her own back, because of this curse of La Llorona. Um, now, this this is an actual belief, okay? I just spelt that wrong. I spelt it La Lorna. But my Google knows me. So, La Llorona is actually, um, translates to the crying woman or the wailer and is a Mexican vengeful ghost who is said to roam near bodies of water, mourning her children, who she drowned in a jealous rage, after discovering her husband was cheating on her. Um, Early colonial times provided evidence that the lore is pre-Hispanic, originating in the Central Highlands. However, La Llorona is is most commonly associated with the colonial era and the dynamic between... Spanish conquistadors and indigenous women, indigenous meaning Native American for my American listeners. The most common lore about La Llorona includes her initially being an indigenous woman who murdered her own children, which she bore from a wealthy Spaniard after he abandoned her. The villainous qualities of La Llorona, including infanticide and the murdering of one's own blood, is assumed to be connected to the narrative surrounding Doña María Marina, also known as La Malinche, okay, in her original, why do they have to use words I have to think about, anyway, in her original form, today the lore of La Llorona is well known in Mexico and the southwestern United States, California for one. Are those wieners? Ooh. You having hot diggity dogs? Ooh. Anyway, so the earliest documentation of La Llorona is traced back to 1550 in Mexico City. But there are theories about her story being connected to specific Aztec mythological creation stories. The Hungry Woman includes a wailing woman constantly crying for food, which has been compared to La Llorona's signature nocturnal wailing for her children. The motherly nature of La Llorona's tragedy has been compared to... Oh, I am not... An, an Aztec goddess. It is one of those ones that ends with codal. So, Chihuahua codal, I think. Because the first half of the word is the first half of the word Chihuahua. So it's Chihuahua codal. We'll go with that. Anyway, so this is an actual legend. Now, back to why it does not belong in The Conjuring Universe. Remember I said that there were some movies that were attached to The Conjuring Universe by the thinnest (coughs) possibility of a thread, right? The only connection that this movie has to the Conjuring universe is Father Perez. Now, Father Perez is the priest from Annabelle. That's it. That is the only connection this movie has to the universe. Yeah. Do you see my dilemma? Do you see my ire? Do you understand why I don't think it should be In here. Just because. You have the name. Of somebody who happens to be. In another series of movies. Doesn't mean you belong. In that group. There are several movies that I have seen. With a father Marin. That do not belong in the Exorcist movie. Realm. Okay. Just saying. This does not belong in the Conjuring universe. Okay. So. That is uh, La Llorona. We'll move on from that. So the next movie, and again, here's another one that I have issues with, um, The Conjuring 2. And this movie sees Ed and Lorraine traveling to England to investigate the Enfield poltergeist. Now, if you research the Enfield poltergeist, which I will pull up for you and give you a little background. There are a lot of conflicting stories surrounding this. Some say that it was staged. Some say that um, it was all faked. Some say it was real. Um, But one thing that is absolutely undeniably, equivocally true about the Enfield Poltergeist is that the Warrens had little to absolutely no involvement in that case at all, other than a phone call from Maurice Gross, who was the lead parapsychologist on the case. He called the Warrens, Asking them for advice, asking them for their take on what was happening. They didn't fly to England. They didn't set up house in um, Enfield. They didn't investigate this this happening. Um, they just didn't. They had. They were involved in a phone call. So that being said, it is a really good movie. And a lot of stuff in the movie are actually a lot of the <laughs> are a lot of the. Uh, he's making chili dogs and he's very excited. He found a can of chili. Um, a lot of the the things that you see in the movie are claims that happened. So um, the house that you see in the movie. The picture that they show, and the, I just freaked myself out. <laughs> so I have a curio cabinet that the back wall, two walls of it, um, it fits in. It's a corner curio cabinet. So the two back walls that the kind of angled, they're mirrored to reflect the light back out and to kind of give it depth. And the shelves are glass. So if you know how mirrors and glass work, you can get a reflection on the bottom of a glass shelf that is the reflection from the mirror, and it appears upside down. So as I'm waving my hands, I'm catching this, this thing moving out of the corner of my eye. I've had some strange goings-ons here. Um, some weird light anomalies happening at night. Some spirit activities. So strangeness like that freaks me out. We'll get into that after, depending on how much time we have. Um, so the house that you see is... An exact replica of the actual house where um, the family lived. Now, they lived in a council house in Brimsdown. Now, if you don't know what a council house is in England, a council house or council flat is a form of British public housing built by local authorities. A council estate is a building complex containing a number of council houses and other amenities like schools and shops. And construction took place mainly from 1919 after the housing act, 1919 to 1980s. So what the British government does is instead of like, they give you a stipend, a welfare stipend to help with food and groceries. You get food stamps and stuff like that. And then they will give you a council house, which is, um, a well, basically a welfare house. Um, so that's what this is. Now, the the whole Enfield poltergeist or the claim of the Enfield pol- poltergeist and supernatural activity took place between 1977 and 1979, and it centered on Janet and Margaret Hodgson. Janet was 11. She was the main focus of the um, the poltergeist. Now, there were some members of the Society for Sus- for cyclical research, such as inventor Maurice Gross and writer Guy Lyon Playfair, and they believed the haunting to be genuine, while others, such as Anita Gregory and John Beloff, were unconvinced and found evidence the girls had faked incidences for the benefit of journalists. Now, members of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims and of the Paranormal including stage magicians such as Millbourne Christopher and Joe Nichol, criticized paranormal investigators for being credulous, whilst also identifying elements of the case as being indicative of a hoax. Now, the story attracted press coverage in British newspapers and has been mentioned in books, featured in television and radio documentaries, and dramatized in The Conjuring 2. Now, the claims. So, single parent, Peggy, claimed that she called the Metropolitan Police um, to her rented home saying that she had witnessed furniture moving and that two of her four children had heard knocking sounds on the walls. The children included Janet, age 11, Margaret, age 13. A police constable reported witnessing a chair wobble and slide but could not determine the cause of the movement. Later claims included disembodied voices, loud noises, thrown toys, overturned chairs, and children levitating. So, if you Google it, you will also see there's pictures. Um, Where are these pictures? They're not on... um, Anyway, back to the claim. So, over a period of 18 months, more than 30 people, including the Hodgson's neighbors... Paranormal investigators and journalists say they variously saw heavy furniture moving of its own accord, objects being thrown across a room, and the sisters seeming to levitate several feet off the ground. Many also heard and recorded knocking noises and a gruff voice. The story was regularly covered in the Daily Mirror newspaper until reports came to an end in 1979. Now Maurice Gross and Guy Lyon Playfair reported curious whistling and barking noises coming from Janet's general direction. In the movie, they have the spirit's voice actually coming from Janet. Although Playfair Playfair maintained the paranormal activity was genuine and wrote in his later book, This House is Haunted, The True Story of a Poltergeist in 1980, that an entity was to blame for the Enfield disturbances, he often doubted the children's veracity and wondered if they were playing tricks and exaggerating, as children will do. Still, Gross and Playfair believed that even though some of the alleged poltergeist activity was faked by the girls, other incidences were genuine. Other paranormal investigators who studied the case, nummy, um, included American demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren. Now, this says they visited the Enfield House in 1978 and were convinced that the events had a supernatural explanation. I have also heard that they were only, like, I've also read in other reports, and this is Wikipedia, so you can't put a whole lot of validity into Wikipedia, um, that they were only consulted through a phone call. They were not as involved in the case. Now, you figure, it all came to an end in 1979. The Warrens did not visit or were consulted until 1978, so... You know, Janet was detected in trickery. A video camera in an adjoining room caught her bending spoons and attempting to bend an iron bar. Gross had observed Janet banging a broom handle on the ceiling and hiding his tape recorder. According to Playfair, one of Janet's voices, whom she called Bill, displayed a habit of suddenly changing the topic. It was a habit Janet also had. When Janet and Margaret admitted pranking to journalists... Gross and Playfair compelled the girls to retract their confessions. The two men were mocked by other researchers for being easily duped. Cyclical research Renee Haynes noted that doubts were raised when the alleged poltergeist voice at the SPR conference in Cambridge in 1978, where video cassettes from Enfield were examined. SPR investigators Anita Gregory stated the Enfield case had been overrated characterizing several episodes of the girls' behavior as suspicious, and speculated that the girls had staged some incidences for the benefit of journalists seeking a sensational story. John Beloff, a former president of the SPR, investigated and suggested Janet was practicing ventriloquism. Both Beloff and Gregory came to the conclusion that Janet and Margaret were playing tricks on the investigators. So, Milbourne Christopher, as an American stage magician, briefly investigated the Enfield occurrences and failed to observe anything that could be called paranormal. He was dismayed by what he felt was suspicious activity on the part of Janet, later concluding that the poltergeist was nothing more than the antics of a little girl who wanted to cause trouble and who was very, very clever. Ventriloquist Ray Allen visited the house and concluded that Janet's male voices were simply vocal tricks. So, like I said, there's a lot of controversy around the Enfield haunting. Um, In 2015, Deborah Hyde commented that there were no solid evidence for the Enfield poltergeist. The first thing to note is that the occurrences didn't happen under controlled circumstances. People frequently see what they expect to see. Their senses being organized and shaped by their prior experiences and beliefs. So. Sorry, I'm just reading. Um, There are photos that are floating around the Internet of the girls. And you see them in the air. And. If you look at them, it looks like they're jumping. That they have jumped, not that they have been levitated, but that they have jumped. Um, and you have to look at a lot of things involved in the picture: the position of the legs, the 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 way the clothing looks. And if she's just being lifted off the ground, then her hair wouldn't be looking like she's jumping from one bed to the other, which in some of these pictures looks exactly like what's happening is that she's jumping. Her nightgown has come up in a fashion that clothing would if you jump up and you're starting to descend. That's just my personal opinion. I could be wrong. I could be not wrong. Anyway, it all ended in 1979. And then there was nothing, there's been nothing, nobody that has lived in the house has reported anything since then. Um, but as I said, now it's 1976. <coughs> now, like I said, they weren't as involved in um, the Enfield Um, they're still really, okay, so at the beginning of this movie, they're still coming off of their most famous investigation, and that is the Amityville haunting. The Amityville case where, uh, Ronald DeFeo Jr. claims that, um, the devil told him, or there was some demonic force that, um, makes him kill his entire family. Do you believe he said it was the dog next door. No, that was Son of Sam. That said, the dog next door told him to kill. Anyway, I'm getting my, my oh, those look good chili cheese dogs, nummy, nummy. Go away for six months, and he suddenly learns how to cook in the last like month before I come back. <laughs> okay, so, um. In 1976, we return to check in on the Warrants, who have been tapped to investigate the chilling events at the Amityville House. Perhaps you've heard of that one. While trying to figure out if a demon caused Ronald DeFeo Jr. to kill his entire family, Lorraine sees a terrifying vision of a demonic nun. Ah, enter the nun yet again. Here is the nun. Valak is back. Um, she fears her vision of Ed getting injured will become a reality as they're called to interpret paranormal events happening in the Hodg- Hodgson's family in London like the Amityville case the events of the conjuring 2 are based on real life Warren investigation the enfield poltergeist though surely hollywood has taken liberties because it's hollywood so the next movie in the conjuring universe which was literally like literally ripped from headlines Um do 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 Okay, so now we are in nineteen eighty one. I'm just getting the name of the accused, so I can bring this Okay, so Arnie Cheyenne Johnson also known as this is like the the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was also known as the devil made me do it case. And that is the third, the conjuring installment. But the I don't know what we're up to now. Um, Let me see. Okay, here we go. Bear with me and see if I can remember them all. We've got the nun Annabelle creation, the nun Two, Annabelle. Annabelle comes home, The Conjuring, The Conjuring 2, and The Conjuring 3. Eight movies so far. I See, notice I left La Llorona out. If I had included it, we would be nine movies in. <laughs> um, so this is uh, 1981, and it's revolving around another based on a true story trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson, who claimed the devil made him kill his landlord. Now, in the film, the Warrens discover that the curse stems from a witch's totem that was summoned by a satanic worshiper. After investigating a similar murder case, Lorraine and Ed discover the chilling backstory of the curse and what needs to be done in order to stop the demon from manipulating others. Okay, so the true facts about the trial of Arnie Cheyenne Johnson. It is the first known court case in the United States in which the defense sought to prove innocence based on the claim of demonic possession and denial of personal responsibility for the crime. On November 24, 1981, in Brookfield, Connecticut, Arnie Cheyenne Johnson was convicted of first-degree manslaughter for the killing of his landlord, Alan Bono. According to testimony by the Glatzel family, eight-year-old David Glatzel allegedly had played host to a demon. After witnessing a number of increasingly ominous occurrences involving David, His family, exhausted and terrified, decided to enlist the aid of Ed and Lorraine Warren in a last-ditch effort to cure the child. No, that is not the exorcist, just so you're aware. The Glatzel family, along with the Warrens, then proceeded to have multiple priests petition the Catholic Church to have a formal exorcism exorcism performed on David. The process continued for several days, concluding when, according to those present, a demon fled the child's body and took up residence within Johnson. These these events were documented in the book The Devil in Connecticut by Gerald Brittle. Several months later, Johnson killed his landlord during a party. His defense lawyer argued in court that he was possessed, but the judge ruled that such a defense could never be proven and was therefore infeasible in a court of law. Johnson was subsequently convicted, though he served only five years of a 10- to 20-year sentence. The trial attracted media attention from around the world and has obtained a level of notoriety due to the numerous depictions of the events in literature and television. A live-action TV prequel titled Where Demons Dwell was released on August 31, 2006. The story was later made into a film adaptation, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It, in 2021. Arnie Cheyenne Johnson and Debbie Glatzel provided firsthand accounts for the version of events depicted in Discovery Channel's Haunting. I've watched it. It's good. Uh, Where Demons Dwell. They said their father was an eyewitness to demonic possession. Both Johnson and Debbie were adamant in their support of the Warren's recollection of events. They asserted that paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property that they had just acquired. David recalled an old man suddenly appearing, pushing and terrifying him. The couple initially thought David was using the old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning. But David informed them them that the old man had vowed to harm the Glatzels if they moved into the rental home. David's visions of the old man included the man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Now, you know what? That's one thing I'm kind of curious about. Why is it all demons only speak Latin? Oh, turn around. You, turn around. There you go. (laughs) I got you, Jay. (laughs) Okay, so I don't understand. Why is it only, they only speak Latin? Latin is a language of the church. Latin is a language, yes, it's been around a long time, but they used to perform mass In Latin. It's a Catholic usable language. They perform exorcisms in Latin. So why is it the demons only speak in Latin? Why is it they don't speak in Swahili? Why do they not speak in Arabic or Portuguese or Chinese? Why is it always Latin? Just wondering. Things that make you go, hmm. Anyway. And no, uh, that is not an invitation for something to come and tell me tonight. Why? You only speak in Latin. Thank you very much. I had the weirdest dream the other night that I'm pretty sure wasn't mine. Um, Okay, so the couple initially thought David was using the old man, yada, yada, yada. Um, Visions of the old man included a man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, No one but David ever witnessed the old man. After David experienced night terrors, exhibited strange behavior, and obtained unexplainable scratches and bruises, the family called upon the services of a Catholic priest who attempted to bless the house. The terrified family concluded that the house was evil and would no longer continue to rent it. After Debbie challenged it in curiousness about her and the rest of her family to be or not in the rental house, the demon makes its presence known." David's visions worsened. Now, this is all the real story, like the real life accounting. This is not the movie. This is the real life accounting of events that occurred. Like I said, the movie is pretty much very close to the actual story. (laughs) David's visions worsened, occurring in the daytime as well. Twelve days after the original incident, the family summoned the demonologist and Lorraine Warren to assist. Lorraine witnessed a black mist materialize next to David, an indication of a malevolent presence. And just to throw that out there, um, I have video of of a similar black presence around me. (laughs) Yeah, fun times. But nothing since the other night. When I did my uh, Oogie Boogie Be Gone... Okay, and all of a sudden, my throat is, like, really scratchy, like, coffee scratchy, and my nose is all stuffed up. Okay, so, Lorraine witnessed a black mist materializing next to David, an indication of a malevolent presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands, and that red marks had appeared on his neck afterward. David had started to growl, hiss, speak in otherworldly voices, and recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Lost. Put that book on the banned list! Come on! Got demon connections! (laughs) Sorry, I couldn't resist. The Glatzels recounted how each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, David was subjected to three lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserts, that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrated the supernatural ability of precognition. Oh, excuse me. Specifically in relation to the manslaughter Johnson would later commit. Excuse me again. In October 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield Police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. According to eyewitness testimony, Arnie Johnson coerced one of the demons purportedly within David to possess him while participating in David's exorcisms. It is here that a haunting veers away from the circumstances of Johnson's possession as described by those involved. According to the show, a few days after Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism, he was attacked rather viciously by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree. But Johnson was unharmed. After this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine an old well that supposedly... How's the demon? See? Telling you, fill those wells up with cement, put a lid on them, walk away. Leave it alone. Um, In both the dramatized version and his own personal account, Johnson said that this was his final encounter with the demon while completely lucid. After encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, he became possessed. Oh. Mm, Yeah, that makes sense. The Warrens claimed to have warned him not to do this, although their warning was not mentioned in a haunting. As David's condition worsened further, Debbie and Johnson, who had been living in her mother's home, decided it was time to move. Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, a new resident in Brookfield, as a dog groomer. Debbie and Johnson began renting an apartment close to her place of employment. After moving in, Johnson started to exhibit odd behavior that was strikingly similar to David's causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed as well. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into a trance-like state wherein he would growl and hallucinate, but later have no memory of it. On February 16, 1981, Johnson called in sick to his job at Wright Tree Service and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked, along with his sister Wanda and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. Bono, the couple's landlord and Debbie's employer at the kennel, bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but insisted they return quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono, intoxicated at this point, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging, except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let go. Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wanda recounted the following events to the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried in vain to pull Johnson away. Johnson, growling like an animal, then drew a 5-inch, 13-centimeter, 13 13-centimeters, 13 pocket knife, and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest and one that stretched from his neck to the base of his heart. Wow, that's quite a distance. Um, Bono, Johnson was discovered two miles, 3.2 kilometers, from the site of the killing and was held at the Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of 125,000. This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. That is the oddest wording ever. I mean, I get it. They were probably a capital punishment state, so there were lawful killings, (laughs) but the first unlawful killing, I just, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe because we don't have capital punishment here in Canada, it still is something that boggles my mind. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um... The incident led to the creation of a television film titled The Demon Murder Case on NBC and preparations for a feature film, the production of which was stalled due to internal conflicts. In 1983, Jared Brittle, with the assistance of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine Warren stated that profits from the book were shared with the family. Sources confirmed that $2,000 was paid to the murderer's family by the book publisher. That's a nasty way of phrasing that now, wasn't it? <laughs> no? Get <Guess> stuck? <laughs> well, okay, fine. Uh, upon the books, Republication 2006 by I-verse, uh, I-Universe, David Glatzel and his brother, Carl Glatzel Jr., Glatzel Jr sued the authors and book publishers for violating their right to privacy, libel, and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Carl also claimed that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness, and that the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would help get Johnson out of jail. According to Carl Glatzel, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother. Lorraine Warren defended her work with the family, claiming that six priests that the six priests who were involved in the incident agreed at the time that the boy was possessed and that the supernatural events she described were real. No independent verification of this claim about the priest's alleged views was provided. Brittle, author of The Devil in Connecticut, says he wrote the book because the family wanted the story told, that he possesses video of over 100 hours of his interviews with the family, and they, that they signed off on the book as accurate before it went to print. And this is why you always get the people to sign off on the thing before you send it to the printer. Cover your ass! <laughs> um, Glutzel's father, Carl Glutzel Sr., denies telling the author that his son was possessed. Johnson and Debbie, now married, wholeheartedly support the Warrens' account of demonic possession and have stated that the Glatzels, in question, were suing simply for monetary purposes. The event inspired the premise of the 2001 film The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. The Discovery Channel's paranormal series, A Haunting, produced the episode Where Demons Dwell, which was based on David's possession and the Warrens' investigation. The episode omitted the preceding of Arnie's crimes. So, yeah. Um in this case, fact is actually weirder than fiction. Um they left a lot of things out in the movie, I think just because there was so much going on in the actual case, it would have made the movie unbelievable. <laughs> so, yeah. Um Now, Interesting to know. That is the final movie so far. There are rumors, however, of another, The Conjuring. (laughs) It's called The Conjuring Last Rites. I will be very disappointed if they end The Conjuring Universe and they do not do the Warrens' investigation of Amityville. Because the Warrens go into that house. The Warrens perform a seance in that house. Lorraine has some very, very, very traumatic experiences during that whole episode in that house. I want to see that. I'm a glutton for that stuff. So, the upcoming Conjuring film... The Last Rites. Um at CinemaCon convention for movie exhibitors and distributors, Warren Brother, Warren Brothers, Warner Brothers announced the title for another Conjuring movie, The Conjuring Last Rights. Whether or not the title is a tacit a admission that it will be the last Conjuring movie remains to be seen. The plot and time period also have not been announced, but we assume it is later in the lives of the imitable Warrens. Hopefully not um they are also uh we can only assume let me see so there's also an upcoming tv series there's also an upcoming tv series uh we can only assume that since this is continuing the story of the warrens it occurs latest in the chronology chronology but a time period or storyline haven't been announced so this is just this author's best guess we, knew, we do know that James Wan, who directed The Conjuring and The Conjuring 2, is in talks with executive producer alongside Peacemaker producer Peter Safran, but there's no word yet when it'll go up on Max, which used to be HBO Max, which haha, <laughs> I get. <laughs> Crave TV, I love you. So those are all the movies in the Conjuring universe that I would like to. That we are going to be watching. I'm going to be watching for the next. Well, we're only three in now. Three. We watched The Nun, Annabelle. And we just watched. No, we watched The Nun, Annabelle Creation. We didn't watch The Nun 2. Because, you know, we can't find it. It's still in theaters. So we watched um, Annabelle tonight. So we are four movies into. We've watched three. But we are actually on the fourth movie. Starting the fifth movie in the not wow that is hard to keep track of let me tell you so that is kind of now this idea is not a new idea to binge a a scary series in the month of october um the guy i'm dating has been doing this for the 6 years that i've known him every october he picks a series it's usually one of 3 <laughs> he doesn't generally deviate too far From his three favorites. And that is either Friday the 13th. Which is when this podcast is coming out. (laughs) I just realized that tomorrow is Friday the 13th. Oh, you're doing Chucky. Going to do Chucky this year. He is deviating from his... uh, Oh, well, you won't find Zoe watching them with you. (laughs) Oh, she's all for it? She's going to watch it? You're going to make her watch it? You're just evil. Um, he usually watches Halloween, Friday the 13th, or Nightmare on Elm Street. He was binging Gremlins today because there was only three, but he fell asleep, so he'll try again another day. Um, but this year, they're going to do Chucky. I'm doing The Conjuring. Last The last two days, my bedtime shows have been... Um, American horror story American horror stories um, where each episode is a different story and let me tell you there have been a couple that um, really freaked me out like I was I was I was panicking at the end of watching there was one called Necro and um, at the end of it, spoiler alert at the end of the episode she she admits that yeah she's got a dark side and she wishes she was dead and alive at the same time and the guy finally convinces her that he's the only one that can be with her cuz he's the only one that understands and she's like you're right so she shoots him he falls backward into the grave he was digging cuz he was a grave digger she was a, a mortician and she crawls into the grave with him, but before she does, she hits the button on the um, dump truck that has all the dirt, and they're in the hole doing the deed as the dirt is falling in on top of them. And I was like, ah, "No, I can't watch. Get out, get out, <laughs> get out." Oh my God, I was freaking out. I was like feeling very claustrophobic in my bed. All of a sudden I'd like get out and I pretty much plastered myself against the window. <laughs> like, no, I can't do this. Um, and then there was another one called Aura. And the Aura is basically um, the ring, you know, the the ring that you have on your door, your doorbell. Uh, they it kept picking up dead people uh, at the door and they'd open the door and there'd be nobody there. And they'd look at the ring on their phone because they would get a notification. Every time somebody was at the door motion detected at the front door. Um, and they would look and there would be like this person standing there and they'd open the door and there'd be nobody there. Or they'd call the neighbor across the street and say, Hey, check your security cameras. There's somebody at my door. And dude's like, no, there's nobody there. So it was, Kind of explained, like, um, it's got this, infra, like, EMF ability, like any camera does, to capture the dead on film. You don't see it with the naked eye, but the camera can see it. And it's like, oh, no. (laughs) I know somebody who has a ring. (laughs) Mine is not on my door anymore. (laughs) It's off my door, actually. And it's in here. (laughs) I took it off in the morning. That wasn't going out in that hallway in the dark, not happening. So, um, yeah, weird and wonderful things have been happening. Well, not, not so wonderful things. Weird and not so wonderful things were happening in my apartment. And um, up until I remembered that my security camera records everything, um, it was just me recounting what was happening. And what was going on um, to other people, and them, you know, trusting me enough to believe in what I'm saying. Um, Now, there were a few occasions where I was on the phone with my live studio audience, and he heard the same noises that I heard. He went with me to investigate said noises and found nothing like I did. Um, So he did experience some of the. chaoticness I guess that has been happening um and then the the really weird shadow figure light anomaly night happened and I had a really bad night sleeping I was restless I was having nightmares um Now my room is super, super cleansed and protected and nothing's getting in there unless I say it can get in here. And the one night things were just getting weird. There were noises happening, things, stuff. So I got my K2 meter out, which is an EMF detector. You see them on all the ghost shows. I have two of them. Um, I won one and bought one. And, um, I got it out, sat it by the doorway in my bedroom, and it was going off like nobody's business. I was talking to it; it was responding um, to my questions. It was when I kicked it out; it got angry, and like the lights—I have video of the lights lighting right up—and um, it freaked me out. I'm like. Oh, I need to, I need to do something because y'all remember three years ago, I, I don't know if it was a possession. I don't know what you would call it. Um, it was a very powerful earth entity. Um, it was never a, it wasn't a spirit. It wasn't a ghost. It was never a human. Um, it's not a demon. It's just a negative energy that overtook me. Um, so you remember me telling you all that. I'm not going to continue telling you about it because if you don't go back and find the podcasts that talk about it. It's October. The veil is very thin. I am not going to continue discussing it because I just cleansed and did like I I used a lot of of sacred oil and plugged up all my holes basically. Um and and got rid of everything out of here. And it's been very quiet for the last couple of nights, but I did catch um, the last night before I did that. I did catch a bunch of things on video. I've sent all the video off to uh, one of my um, people that analyze my, that would analyze my videos on paranormal investigations because you get hours hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of footage that you have to sift through with a fine-tooth comb to make sure you don't miss anything because sometimes it's like the slightest movement a book will shift on a shelf or a cup handle will flip from one side to the other side because that's all the energy they can muster so she's been going through it with fresh eyes um and she has been picking out a lot of things that were happening. The the recording was glitching like no tomorrow. And my it my camera doesn't glitch. There is no glitching involved when I was doing the uh expelling <laughs> the expulsion um from my apartment. And um the night before there was a lot of dark shadows and this really weird uh, almost um, ectoplasmic, yeah, ectoplasmic type thing, kind of examining my bookshelf and and it like it literally would go across each of the shelves, kind of bouncing off the books, looking at the books. and checking out the coffee pot and my TV and all the stuff in my curio cabinet. You see it several times trying to get into my room and it would get longer and shorter. And, you know, at first I thought, okay, spider web, but spiderwebs don't get shorter. They get longer, but they don't get shorter. They can't suck it back up into their butt. That's not how it works. Um, I thought a hair, but a hair would not go longer or go shorter. It would be the same length the entire time. Um, I thought maybe it was a reflection from a car going by outside, but you see cars go by, you see the lights go by on the wall, and this doesn't behave like that. It almost seemed like, you know, somebody standing outside with like a flashlight or something, kind of shining it around, but it only seems to be coming from one particular spot and moving around the inside of the apartment and you do see like the end of it. So it wasn't like a beam. It was really weird, really weird. I sent it to several people and most of them, if not all of them save one had the exact same opinion. So then I did this thing. I, I used this protective oil that I have. And there's been nothing on my video since then, like no motion detected, for hours and hours and hours on end. Like, I don't even move in the bed because I don't sleep with my door closed anymore because it's getting cold, so I have the heat on, so I don't want to have to use too many heaters. So, um, anyway, it's been quite peaceful for the last few nights. <laughs> um But, yeah, tomorrow's Friday the 13th, so I think uh, tonight I will be oiling i will be oiling up tonight um i have to do it every night until we can figure out how to get rid of this permanently um but i have lots of oil so i'm good anyway so that's that's yeah especially seeing us tomorrow's friday the 13th and i know it's a superstitious day but i'm not taking any chances um uh, my mama didn't raise no fool So, all right, I think I'm going to, oh, 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 wait, I do have some Florida man news. I do have some Florida man news. Okay, so I sent you the TikTok of the dude. I did a Florida man story a while ago about a Florida man that was arrested for a sticker he had in his back window. I saw a TikTok today that is part of an interview of the actual dude that was arrested. Now, the sticker in the back of his pickup truck window says, I eat ass. He's very proud of that fact. He likes to advertise that fact. So a Florida man was arrested for refusing to remove a sticker on his pickup truck, proclaiming that he eats ass will not be prosecuted so you see the video from the dash cam of the cop car where the cop is like okay turn around puts handcuffs on him and the dude's like "What what what what's happening he's like you're being arrested and for what he says well because of the sticker in the back of your window and um your refusal to remove it and he's like can i get my phone the reason why he asks if he can get his phone is because his buddy is sitting at the restaurant waiting for him to show up they're gonna have lunch together he has no idea that his buddy's being arrested (laughs) so um now the man so how he ended up um there was a lawyer that so this is the initial story i'll read you the initial story and then i'll give you the update So the man is threatening to sue the sheriff's office for violating his First Amendment rights. Dylan Shane Webb, 23, was stopped Sunday on a highway in Lake City west of Jacksonville by a Columbia County Sheriff's deputy who saw a sticker in his rear window that reads, I eat ass. Dashcam footage shows the deputy telling Webb that the reason he was pulled over was a derogatory sticker in the back of his window. And Webb asks, how is that derogatory? How is it not derogatory? The deputy responds. Some 10-year-old little kid sitting in the passenger seat of his mama's vehicle looks over and sees I eat ass and asks his mom what it means. How is she going to explain that to him? You just do. Then Webb responded, that's the parent's job, not my job. You eat donkey. (laughs) Webb was issued a summons for what the sheriff deputy said was a misdemeanor violation of Florida's obscene materials law. Dash cam footage shows the deputy telling Webb that if one of his four children asked him about the sticker, he would be furious. When the deputy told Webb to remove one of the letters from the word ass to read as, Webb refused, citing his constitutional right to free speech. The deputy subsequently arrested Webb and charged him with the additional offense of resisting an officer without violence. News of Webb's arrest, and his sticker, made news around the country. In a notice filed Thursday, prosecutors announced that they were dropping the charges against him. Having elevated the evidence, evaluated the evidence through the prism of Supreme Court precedent, it is determined that the defendant has a valid defense to be raised under the First Class Amendment of our United States Constitution, Assistant State Attorney John Foster Durant wrote. Given such, a jury would not convict under these facts. Webb's lawyer, Andrew Bonderud, told BuzzFeed News they were now considering a number of potential claims against the Sheriff's Office. Bonderood noted that the dashcam footage shows the deputy at first telling his client that the sticker was derogatory instead of obscene. He also highlighted that in several points, one of the deputy's colleagues can be heard telling him via the radio to tow his shit. Not only were they wrong on the law, but they happened to be hypocrites, he said. Bondarude said Webb's sticker didn't satisfy the rigorous standard to be found to be obscene, which he said typically refers to something that is erotic in nature apparently he doesn't know what eating ass means the i eat ass sticker could be a euphemism for a number of things he insisted the bottom line is that he and his friends thought it would be funny bondered said and he couldn't he shouldn't end up in jail for making a joke like that Bondarud acknowledged that this free speech case was unique compared with the others he has worked on, but said Webb was heroic for fighting for his rights. I think it was brave of him to refuse to take down what he thought was protected speech. Bondarude said it showed, I think it showed coverage, courage on his part. Bondarude was misquoted in an earlier version of this story. He said the sticker did not meet the rigorous standards to be found to be obscene, not offensive. Um, okay, so the update. So the dude actually did time in jail. He had to sit in a jail cell for like three, four, five hours waiting for his parents to come down and bail him out. Ridiculous, right? So this the video went viral. He told his buddy about it and everybody because of course in Florida, every time they arrest somebody, it goes up on their Facebook page. So it just blew up. A lawyer, this Andrew dude, got wind of this and thought, you know what? I get to stick it to the county's office and I get to have fun doing it. He took the case pretty much, I think, pro bono, just because it was going to be that much fun. And it was going to get him that much notoriety. So, dude, the charges were dropped. And now they're looking at um, suing the county sheriff's office for... Um, breaching his constitutional rights of free speech. Now, the lawyer is going to argue that it is. um, Oh, I can't remember the term he used. Critical literature. Um, And he says, you know, like freedom of speech means freedom of speech. You're allowed to say and put on your car whatever you want. Just because you don't like what you happen to see on somebody else's car doesn't mean you have a right to make them remove it. That's their right to free speech. You don't have to like it. And I'm sorry, but if my 10-year-old kid came to me and said, what does I eat ass mean? That is far less worse than some of the things they could be coming asking you that they have seen on the Internet as of late. Or at school. You know, they could be coming and asking you why this guy that looks like a girl is telling them to come to his Patreon and pay $4 to talk to him privately because parents don't know anything and parents are the bad guys. So I'm sorry if my 10 year old wants to ask me, what does I IE ask mean? I'm going to tell him in terms appropriate for a 10 year old. Not going to tell them that. <laughs> Some days, you know, my live studio audience has a tongue almost the length of Gene Simmons. That's all I'm saying. Anyway, there are far worse things that a kid could be asking you that they're seeing out the window of a car. I happen to know of people that every time they see a Toyota in California, the first thing comes out of their mouth is crackhead. That is worse than seeing I eat ass on the back of a pickup truck. The fact that all crackheads drive Toyotas. The fact that an eight-year-old child knows what a crackhead is. That is just sad in and of itself. I didn't know what a crackhead was when I was eight years old. I didn't even know what drugs were when I was eight years old. So, you know, yeah. But I wanted to give you that update on a previous Florida Man story that I had done. Um, It's not often that I get updates on Florida man stories that I do. So when I came across this TikTok, I was like, oh my God, (laughs) I talked about this on my podcast. Holy crap. Dude's pissed. (laughs) Didn't realize he was going to go viral. And he's just a good old Florida boy. Oh yeah, it was cute. So anyway, that's your Florida man update for tonight. And I think I'm going to end this podcast here because it is Thursday and I do have to spin it down and then upload it to the drive so that my ever so lovely producer can do all the things that he does to make it a wonderful podcast and get it out to you tomorrow. All right. So, you know, he did have a nap, though, so it's not like he can't stay up late. <laughs> OK, everybody, um, have a good week and the countdown is on um that's all i'm going to say on that if you know you know and i will talk to you all next week so you know the rules be kind take some time for self care be kind to yourself and don't lick shit okay see ya <laughs>
0: Carry on my way with son There'll be peace when you are done Lay your weary head to rest Don't you cry, Don't you cry.